Hello, and welcome to Missing Pages. My name is Scott McWilliams. Episode 2, The Great American Empires. This episode is a continuation from the last one. I'm going to be continuing to use the book 1491 as the basis for all of this discussion. And as we are continuing to follow the same subject matter as in last episode, please excuse any mispronunciations of any words, terms, names, or places, as I do not speak the languages that these words originate from. Last episode, we left off talking about the rise of multiple different cultures in Mesoamerica. So I think that's a good place to start this one. We remember that the Olmec were the first, and the Zapotec followed just afterwards, so I think that's a good place to start. The Zapotec were one of those societies that we talked about last episode, and they're located in the Valley of Oaxaca. The Oaxaca Valley is kind of a craggly Y that snakes its way through central Mexico. There are cities located at each end of the valley, and in the center it's kind of a no-go zone. However, after the fall of the Zapotec city San Jose Magote, they relocated to Mount Alban, right in the middle of that buffer zone. For the time, this city was actually quite the feat. It was about half the size of the Vatican and housed 17,000 people, which would rival many big cities in Europe. And up the entire slope of the mountain, there was a massive terracing project, basically turning it into a giant staircase. During their reign atop Mount Alban, the Zapotec were able to crush multiple enemy states, one of those being the San Martin Tilcayete to the south and the Nusawai, though we'll talk about those guys later because they were never fully defeated. Alongside the Zapotec were a couple different societies that were also growing, one of them being the Teotihuacan, and their first city was founded around Lake Texcoco, and this was right around the turn from BC to AD. They emerged very quickly as a military power and ruled most of central Mexico. They even had some political puppets that reached all the way down to Guatemala. During the peak of their capital city, Teotihuacan, being the city name as well, it may have had 200,000 inhabitants. It was centered around the Avenue of the Dead, and at one end was the Pyramids of the Sun and the Moon, and at the other end was the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. Although they didn't really have a large-scale use of writing, there has been small forms found. But this city fell in the 8th century, for unknown reasons. I have some ideas, but I'll talk about those a little bit later. The other civilization we mentioned last episode, and those were the Maya. They rose and fell right about the same time. The Maya were a little bit more like Greek city-states. The entire area shared cultural foundations, but they had a lot of constant conflict between different cities. One of those cities was Khan, or Kalakmul, which at its peak likely had 50,000 residents and over 500,000 in the city-state. It's another city with massive pyramids and over 6,000 masonry buildings. Khan stands as one of the pillars of the Hundred Years' War in Mesoamerica. There were two major city-states that fought against each other for over a hundred years, that being Khan and Mudal. At the beginning, Khan decided to form a ring around Muddle through alliances. It allied with some southern cities to overrun Muddle and actually overtook the entire city. Because kings were seen as purely divine, they could not be replicated or replaced. So Khan decided to leave Muddle without a king. There were many attempts to restore Muddle with different kings, one of them being Nun Ujol Chak, but he failed to take back Muddle and Khan installed a new king. 
a coup was started to replace this king, and it was actually a coup started to install the son of Nun Ujol Chak. And this coup actually worked, as they were able to install their new king and defeat the Khan. For the Khan, this was pretty embarrassing. This defeat marked the beginning of the end for the Maya. At the peak of the Maya, more people lived in that area than live there today. But over time, priests started to lose their scientific expertise and were starting to date things less. The last inscriptions to be found are dated to about 869 AD. There are a lot of different ideas about why the Maya went away, and perhaps this battle wasn't necessarily the main reason. Around the same time, there were massive droughts, and that led to millions and millions of Maya starving and going thirsty. This probably wasn't entirely the environment's fault, though. It seems that there was a giant administrative failure. Now, Khan and Muddle, they went down pretty quick, but Chichen Itza, to the north, was able to outlast some of this drought. The way they did this was that they started to embrace trade. Because they couldn't farm, they started to bring the food in from elsewhere. And in doing so, they created a merchant class, and that allowed them to get through this drought. This drought may have also been what caused Teotihuacan to fall as well, but that's just my opinion, and I'm not a historian. Alongside Teotihuacan and the Maya was another civilization. I mentioned them earlier, the Nusawai. The Nusawai were incredible. They had an in, they had an extreme they had they had an excre- fuck you. They had a they had a massively complex culture, and you could compare them basically to 17th century Europe. They had kings and noble courts, conquests between different city-states, cultural implosions, alliances, and royal marriages. There were some stark differences, though. Heredity was passed through the queen rather than the king, and there wasn't strict primogeniture, primogeniture being when the oldest child is the natural heir. The way they did it was they just picked someone that they thought was right. Along with this, they had a massive writing system, and many works still exist today, at least the ones that weren't destroyed by the Spanish. Some of these writings you could actually mistake if you just changed the names for Shakespeare. This story starts with two kingdoms, Tilantango and Red and White Bundle. The main character is Eight Deer. He is a representative for Tilantango and the cousin to the king. He met with an oracle to try to settle this conflict between these two kingdoms. This oracle, who has a very skeletal appearance, decided that the Tilantango were in the wrong, and Eight Deer was exiled. While in exile, Eight Deer decided to raise an army and begin a military campaign to take down Red and White Bundle. Over time, he successfully started seizing dozens of towns and states, and created the largest empire in the entire region. In a chance encounter, Eight Deer runs into Six Monkey, the young wife of the King of Red and White Bundle, and they fall in love. When the King of Tilantango dies, Eight Deer's half-brother is chosen as king, and mysteriously is stabbed three years later. 
Upon this happening, Eight Deer becomes king and declares war on Red and White Bundle. Eight Deer's sights are then set on the palace at the capital of Red and White Bundle, a heavily fortified fortress with three massive walls and a giant berm on the final side. Quote, Leading an army of a thousand, Eight Deer threw up ladders, swarmed over the berm with his men, and entered the palace. As befit a conqueror, Eight Deer was wearing elaborate cotton armor, a ceremonial beard wig, and a cowl made from the head of a jaguar. Gold and jade necklaces dangled across his chest. In the palace, he found Six Monkey and her husband, the king of Red and White Bundle. Both were mortally wounded. Unquote. Six Monkey dies in Eight Deer's arms. In an act of mercy, Eight Deer decides to spare the sons of the king, but only if they bow down to him. But, since this is a Shakespearean story, it doesn't end there. One of those sons is named Four Wind. Four Wind works with the Zapotec and starts to enact his revenge. Tilantango is besieged for six months and eventually surrenders. Four Wind forces Eight Deer to bow down in poetic fashion. He then disembowels Eight Deer and marries his daughter. He didn't end there. Four Wind eventually would betray the Zapotec and ally with their enemy, the Toltec. With this new ally, Four Wind was able to overtake the Zapotec and force them to pay tribute. And in doing so, Four Wind created a much bigger empire than Eight Deer had ever dreamed of. And this empire lasts all the way until the 15th century, when it is taken over by the Mexica. The Mexica have a very interesting place in this story. You'd think, after hearing about the Teotihuacan and the Toltec, that this new empire would be kind of reminiscent of those old ones. But the Mexica are not. Rather than being sophisticated and bold adventurers overtaking this once-inhabited land, they're actually exiles. They're poor and unsophisticated. They arrive in Lake Texcoco in around 1250 AD. They were likely driven away from the fertile land and forced to live on a swampy island in the middle of the lake. In 1325, a priest had a vision involving a snake being held in an eagle's claws while it sits upon a cactus. And where this eagle is, is where this new great city shall be born. You can see this depicted in the Mexican flag in the center. The city that was born was Tenochtitlan. Shortly thereafter, the Mexica formed an alliance with two smaller vassals, and together they were able to overthrow their overlords. These three put together are called the Triple Alliance. More commonly, though, you might hear them being called the Aztec, but that is not completely correct, as there are three distinct groups of people all under this one alliance, the Aztec just being the biggest of them. The Triple Alliance did create a great city. Quote, It was bigger than Paris, Europe's greatest metropolis. It had wide streets, ornately carved buildings, and markets bright with goods from hundreds of miles away. Boats flitted like butterflies around the three grand causeways that linked Tenochtitlan to the mainland. Long aqueducts conveyed water from the distant mountains across the lake and into the city. Even more astounding than the great temples and immense banners and colorful promenades were the botanical gardens. None existed in Europe. 
The same novelty, the same novelty attended the force of a thousand men that kept the crowded streets immaculate. Along with the majestic city, the trip, the Triple Alliance created a brand new divinity to go along with it, and a brand new mythology about their beginnings. During their rise, the Triple Alliance destroyed all of the history of their poor beginnings. They created ties to the Teotihuacan and Toltecs, which brings into question whether the Toltecs even existed at all or were pure fiction. They created a national ideology that was used to strengthen their claims on the surroundings and solidify their idea of their empire, their own manifest destiny, if you will. Their new divinity story was very complex. It included, and pardon my pronunciations here, Ometeatl, which was the father of four sons, Hitsilopochtli, the fifth son, this son meaning the star, not the relation. This sun's son would fight against the moon and the stars each and every day, and every few thousand years, these sons, these, and every few thousand years, these brothers would fight for power. One of them would eventually win, and the rest would fight at the bottom, creating an equilibrium. In order to preserve the sun, sacrifices would be, sacrifices, human sacrifices were made. There were slaves and criminals, but most often were prisoners of war. Now, to us today, this seems pretty brutal and, and terrible. To us today, this seems pretty brutal and terrible, but at the same time, in, across the ocean, very similar things were happening in Europe. Quote, In both places, the public death was accompanied by the reading of ritual scripts and in both the goal was to create a cathartic paroxysm of loyalty to the government, in the Mexico case, by recalling the spiritual justification for the empire, in the European case, to reassert the sovereign's divine power after it had been injured by a criminal act." Unquote. In both of these places, these acts were not held in secret, they were actually held in public. Both in Europe and in Mesoamerica, People would flock by the thousands to watch public executions. The Mexico weren't purely religious, though. They also had philosophy. Every single male citizen went to school until they were 16 years old, regardless of social class. They created many theories about life and existence, just as was done in Eurasia. They had writings about the impermanence of life. Quote, Like a painting, we will be erased. Like a flower, we will dry up here on earth. Like plumed vestments of the precious bird, that precious bird with the agile neck, we will come to an end. Unquote. And it's a shame, it is truly a shame, that while they didn't reach the levels of China or Greece with their philosophy, they were well on their way. And it's a tragedy that, and it's a tragedy that they couldn't continue this thread. And it's a tragedy that this thread could not be continued. Imagine the great challenges that they would have. Imagine the great debates between people of Mesoamerica and Rousseau, or John Locke. There are great, there are great leaps in philosophy that could have been reached, but were never allowed. There are great leaps of philosophy that could have been Charles C. Mann, 
the author of 1491, puts this very succinctly, quote, Having grown separately for millennia, the Americas were a boundless sea of novel ideas, dreams, stories, philosophies, religions, moralities, discoveries, and all the other products of the mind. Few things are more sublime or characteristically human than the cross-fertilization of cultures. The simple discovery by Europe of the existence of the Americas caused an intellectual ferment. How much grander would have been the tumult if Indian societies had survived in full splendor? Unquote. And this wasn't the only and this wasn't the only empire to fall. Down south a few hundred miles was another. It starts it starts with the descendants of the Nordicico. First the Wari and the Tiwanaku. The Wari gained prominence around 500 AD during a time of great droughts and intermittent El Nino flooding. They created vast amounts of terracing and irrigation systems to get through these droughts. They directed snowmelts from the peaks to their farms, and in doing so, more land was arable above 9,000 feet than below. The city, also named Wari, was a very dense capital, with probably around 70,000 people living there. There were walled-off temples, royal tombs, and apartments. They didn't have much warfare, but they did expand. To do so, they placed administration centers all around in different cities to help keep people in check in their empire. Instead of pure conquest, it was more akin to intellectual supremacy. One of these administration centers was at Cerro Bau, which is a basin in the mountains. Surrounding this city was another society, the Tiwanaku. The Tiwanaku were very different from Wari. Instead of very centralized administration, the leaders used smoke and mirrors to keep the population in check. The capital city, also called Tiwanaku, it's kind of a trend, was at 12,600 feet. At that time, it was the highest city in the world. It surrounded a seven-tiered pyramid shaped like an Andean cross. The Andean cross looks like if you have a square overlaying the red cross, kind of in a stair step. This pyramid had very complex engineering and a drainage system that mimicked that coming from the Andean peak. I said before that this government kind of ran on smoke and mirrors. The way they did this was by using constant construction around the city to kind of give off the impression of a bustling town. They would tear apart old monuments and create new ones constantly. They never fully finished any one project. Along with this, there were no markets in this town. Everyone grew their own food and made their own clothes. They would also invite tourists to kind of look at their bustling city and dazzle them. So Tiwanaku was more like Disneyland than an actual city. Though Tiwanaku and Wari were very close to each other, in fact, Tiwanaku completely surrounded Sarabaul, they never really interacted. They both fell in around 800 AD due to droughts. There seems to be a trend with droughts around that time. It seems unlikely that this is the only reason, though, considering the Wari were able to outlast the last droughts they were part of. But alas, they did fall. Following in their footsteps were the Kimor, and they created the greatest empire, to that point at least, in South America. They had their struggles though, massive El Nino flooding, which inhibited their irrigation attempts. So to counteract this, Kimor built a canal. However, upon further inspection of this canal, it doesn't seem like it actually worked at all. Parts of it went uphill, parts of it would have flooded completely. It was an engineering disaster. Perhaps they were taking inspiration from the Tiwanaku just to keep people pacified. 
by having them take part in the building of a giant project. Kimor did have some success though, they did create a very large capital called Chan Chan. It was a very, very dense four square mile city. It had nine high-walled imperial palace tombs and five cathedral-like ceremonial complexes. However, unlike most cities in the world, it didn't really have much living space. These streets were not inhabited by normal people. They were reserved for the elites. So this city was probably more spectacle than it was practical, and similar to the Tiwanaku, there was constant construction. Every single time there was a new ruler, they would create a brand new palace for themselves, and mummies were placed inside of their own palaces that were created for them. These grand spectacles that were created lasted quite long. However, the next great empire put an end to the Kimor. This empire being, of course, the Inca. At their peak, the Inca held the greatest empire in the entire world, but it was very short-lived. The mythological beginnings start with four brothers and four sisters leaving Lake Titicaca to form the capital, Cusco. They gradually started to gain power and overpower most of those around them. During one of these conflicts, they were actually attacked by a nearby kingdom called the Chanca. The king at the time, Wiracocha Inca, fled, taking three of his four sons with them. The one son that stayed behind, Yupanqui, fought off those invaders. Upon returning from exile, Wiracocha Inca decided to assert his dominance and plotted to kill this upstart son. However, this plot was foiled, and Yupanka became king and renamed himself Pachacuti, and Pachacuti means the world eater. Pachacuti began his conquest immediately, and his reign lasted a quarter century. However, his conquest was not through warfare. Rather, it was through diplomacy. He would create a house that ruled a city for the empire. He would collect tribute from the city, and over time would overtake them completely, since they would eventually have no legs to stand on. This great empire that Pachacuti created was called Tawantinsuyu, or the Land of Four Quarters. The government was one that Lenin and Stalin would probably dream of. All land belonged to the state. In fact, it belonged to the Inca himself. As a side note, the word Inca was both the people as well as the name for the ruler, and was often placed inside of the name as well, similar to how the ruler was named in Rome, for example, Julius Caesar. Along with owning all of the land, the Inca also would allocate jobs to people, and they were forced to take different professions throughout their lives depending on what was needed for the state. There was no currency or markets, but they were actually able to eradicate hunger completely. And there is a lot of evidence that there were overflowing warehouses with goods. The state didn't just affect the locals, though. They also forcefully relocated all of those that were conquered and created an almost completely homogenous culture. After 25 years of conquest, Pachacuti decided to leave the expansion to his son Thupa Inca, which would be his name once he became king. Pachacuti decided to turn to his capital and do some city building. And similarly to Tenochtitlan, Cusco became a sight to behold. At the center was a massive plaza, about 650 by 900 feet, and it was covered completely by raked white sand from the Pacific coast. Surrounding it on three sides were villas and temples. They were made with perfectly cut stone that didn't even need mortar. And if you go to Cusco today, you can see those. The stones are lined with precision that we really don't even see in buildings today. They are so perfectly aligned that you can't even fit a needle between the stones. 
and covered on top of that was polished gold plates, is yet another city of gold. Branching from the center were four different highways that would run to each of the four districts, those four quarters in the name of the empire. Along with that, 41 different snaking roads led to different sacred landscape features around the city, and that coincided with their calendar. They had 41 eight-day weeks. This city actually did have people living in it. However, when the Inca moved throughout the city, it was empty. Because the Inca was seen as the most sacred and holy person, people would leave the streets and then follow him later to try to get a glimpse. There's even records of them tearing their eyebrows and eyelashes out in the process. Everything that was touched by the Inca was then removed by minions following him around, since no one would be able to match his holiness. And every single year, everything was destroyed, all the way from table scraps to the chairs he would sit on to his own spit. The Inca would, as tradition, marry his sister, as she was the only person almost as pure as him. Along with her, he had hundreds to even thousands of other wives. And when the Inca died, there was no strict succession. So, because he had so many wives, there were often tens to even a hundred different sons that were all vying for position. And this led to many problems in the country, as often happens when succession rules are not set. Luckily, the first transition, Pachacuti to Thupa Inca, was pretty smooth. But the ones after that? Not so much. After doubling the size of Tawantinsuyu, Thupa Inca decided to switch at the last minute to a new heir on his deathbed. The two sons that he chose fought for the throne. The winner was named Waina Kapak. Waina Kapak decided to focus on public works rather than conquest, as the empire was getting too big for its boots. After stabilizing the empire, he and his son, Atahualpa, went on a mission to gain more land. However, the land that they were trying to take was very different from all of the land that Pachacuti and Thupa Inca took. It was a completely different culture, and it was very difficult to get those people into the fold. So, during conquest, they lost many battles and were never fully able to expand the empire. A few days after returning from battle, Wainokapak dies suddenly. In choosing his heir, he overlooks Atahualpa and chooses Washkar Inca instead. This decision causes immediate turmoil. Loyalists to the previous king attempt to kill Washkar Inca, and Atahualpa insists that he should be the king. In doing so, a civil war starts. Sparing the details of this civil war, Atahualpa was able to defeat Washkar Inca and imprison him in Cusco. Unluckily for him and the entire empire, this war ended just as Francisco Pizarro was landing his ships on the Pacific coast. These two empires were the largest in America. However, they weren't the only places with large populations. To the north, along the Mississippi River, Cahokia stood as the largest and only major city north of the Rio Grande. It lasted from about 950 to 1250 AD and held about 15,000 people. It wasn't a traditional city that you saw in those other empires. It was mostly farmers and had very little middle class. But because they were completely separated from those other empires, they had to entirely invent urban life for themselves. At the center of Cahokia was Monk's Mound, a 650 foot by 900 foot clay mound that covered 15 acres of land and was the largest earthen structure in the entire Western Hemisphere. There was also mounting evidence that the Amazon was another location of a massive empire, but as of right now, it is not clear. However, their culture could have been just as complex, 
maybe not reaching the height of the Inca and the Triple Alliance, but still being able to change the world around them. They built canals, bridges, irrigation systems, water highways, cities, towns, and temples. And hopefully in the near future we will understand more about the Amazonian culture, because as the evidence stands right now, it could have held millions of people and been one of the most densely populated places in the entire world. Unknown to all of these people, these empires, great and small, would soon encounter a foe, seen and unseen, that they had never faced before. And the impact was devastating. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Missing Pages. Don't forget to follow me on whatever podcasting app you are listening to this on. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at MissingPagesPod for any updates regarding future episodes. This episode of Missing Pages was recorded and produced by me, and the intro and outro music were created by Jason Shaw. Thank you so much again for listening, and I'll see you next time.